everybody, uh, a lot of you want to work with VaynerMedia. Good news, we're hiring. We're hiring creators, uh, specifically right now, and we'll keep updating this promo throughout the year. Video and design capable individuals. People that have good ideas and would know what to do if we needed to sell watermelon or or bubble gum or soap or wine or sneakers. Uh, we're looking for video and image creators. Think about the stuff I put out on Instagram, that kind of stuff. Are you scrappy? Are you hungry? Uh, com slash creators with an S. Uh, go fill out the form. Please join our team at VaynerX because I think some of these people are gonna go into 137, some are gonna go to Vayner Talent, mainly for Vayner Media and maybe the occasional person for Team Gary V. If you wanna join the VaynerX family, please go check out, specifically right now for Vayner Media, though we save the resumes and we move them around to GaryVee.com slash creators with an S. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. I'm in the lead. Oh man. Okay, go ahead, Gary. Uh, hey, everybody. It's Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, I, I had to transfer to a car, so I haven't done a lot of these lives, as you know, in this environment. So my partner in crime, who usually drives it anyway, who being the head of uh, the president of Vayner Commerce, and I are excited to be here. Uh, I may chop in and out because I know I'm driving down a path that doesn't have a great internet. Um, but we're really excited about another Coffee and Commerce, and uh, we have two incredible guests today. And uh, Zubin, take it away. Thanks, Gary. Um, yep, really happy to be with everybody today. We've got uh, to start off. We've got the co-founder of Apartment Two B, Alex Back, one of my favorite clients, a gentleman, a scholar, and we are absolutely enamored to have him on today. Alex, thanks for joining us. Well, you are. I mean, Gary. Just, I mean, he's going through his body here. Oh, there he goes. I'm here. I'm here. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, Yes, I'm the uh, co-founder and CEO of uh, Apartment 2B. We are a furniture brand that lives online only. Been around since 2010. So uh, we had some very interesting beginnings, as you may imagine, in the e-com space selling furniture. Pretty much at that time, everybody would tell you that you were crazy to do that. Um, now, uh, furniture brands like us are somewhat a dime a dozen. And uh, it's been an interesting road, an interesting wave to ride. To just jump right in because I want to bring tons of value. Internet only. Do you expect in the history of your company to be in a place where you may have some brick and mortar as brick and mortar probably goes through heavy transition over this next two to three years? Do you envision experiential, what I would call brick and mortar 3.0 of the future? Is that on your mind at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the word is experiential. We're not looking for it as a revenue stream. It would just be sort of like a flagship we talked about Brand it forever. Building. Yeah, yeah we, we've had pop-ups in the past. Early on, we did a few in Los Angeles where we're based. And you know, we've looked at retail spaces over the years, looking for that right opportunity. Um, there's, I think there's a lot of value in something like that for a brand like ours, even if no one gets to visit it. Just having that presence is something that people are drawn to. Alex, talk to us a little bit about getting started, right? So a lot of the advice that entrepreneurs get around starting a direct-to-consumer digitally native brand is pick products that are um, certainly not too expensive, right? Like a lot of the products that you see online, average product prices like $35 to $50. The products are super lightweight so they can ship easily. And you decided to go completely the other direction and 
select furniture that's incredibly heavy to ship and price points are higher. And yet when we talk to clients, customers of yours, et cetera, they're getting these things within days. Um, they're super happy about it. How, well, how did you decide to even do this and how did you succeed at doing it? Well, it's interesting because that would be the biggest barrier to entry when starting an online furniture business that theoretically would serve the entire nation. Originally, we started the concept was to live in Los Angeles only and to kind of tackle one marketplace at a time. We did that for a couple of years and the interest was just growing and growing. And my business partner, Matt Herman, and I, we were we were very just enamored by all of the attention we were getting. I just figured we'd you know, open up the floodgates. We did that in 2013 and that's when our business went like this, orders coming in from every bit of the country. So we really just had to adapt on the fly. The, 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 the demand was there and we just needed to figure it out. A lot of bumps in the road along the way, as you can imagine. But um, I think, I think it, it's actually a lot more of a well-oiled machine these days than, than one might expect. So well, actually, you know, 10 years of operating, you know, actually, you know, for you to be alive 10 years, like I think people take entrepreneurship for granted, like being alive 10 years later is a remarkable feat. And it's funny, I, when you just said that, and I'm sorry to jump in, I actually think it's wildly well-oiled at this point from two standpoints, things that you've actually accomplished and things that you know are completely fucked up that you can't wait to fix at some point because you have so much context of the 120 months of being into the game, true? 100%, that's what I live. I mean, you know, one of our big things, I think one of the biggest things that's made us successful is the fact that we got in early and we're able to figure out the kinks. We already were in the furniture industry before we got into this, so that gave us a tremendous advantage to be able to solve some of the issues, the logistical uh, nightmares that, that may arise in the furniture industry. And then being an operator of this specific business for the last 10 years, like I always say to my team, there's not a problem we haven't seen before. We know how to solve pretty much everything. Pat pattern recognition, even if you haven't seen exactly, it's a kissing cousin of something you saw three years ago in this market. I mean, that you know, Zubin, we were in an internal meeting today about my speed. It's only because I'm now at 44 years old, 38 years into truly, and call it 22 if you don't want to take my childhood, though I learned everything there, 22 years into so much pattern recognition, it might not be the same thing, but it's the same thing. You agree, Alex? Hundred percent. I mean, it's um, pattern recognition is not something that I've like a term that I've thought of before or, or is on my mind at, uh, on a regular basis. That's exactly what it is. Just knowing exactly how to address something, make quick decisions, um, and react. It's to experience. You know, it, for, for a lot of us young, talented, you know, what you don't know is how much experience matters. Like COVID hits, and I go directly into recession 08. I go directly into 9-11, which in a lot of ways had comps. I go directly into other things that I didn't live, but I lived through the eyes of my great grandparents and grandparents of war. You know, like real stuff, not kidding. And so, you know, I you know, I think and, and back to like adversity being such a good thing for kids, yet we've taken it away. I also was a poor student, had a lot of adversity. So COVID felt normal, if that makes sense. Sure. And you know, one thing we always talk about is Apartment 2B was started on the heels of a recession. Um, my business partner has this great story. He was living in a fat house in the Hollywood Hills, um, ended up losing his job because of the 2008 situation. 
And that's kind of what apartment to be was born of people downsizing their lives, moving into apartments, totally. uh, getting out of their houses, moving towards the cities, looking for work, looking for a new hope. Um, so to me, it, it always sort of seemed like opportunity, maybe not like the first few weeks, but quickly it seemed evident that this was a big opportunistic moment for us. And our industry has experienced ridiculous growth in the last few months. Insane. Like, impossible to keep up with type stuff. And I think there are two areas here that awesome. you have an incredibly interesting perspective on that you can add a lot of value on. So one side of it is what you mentioned earlier, where you started as a local business. It's just that you deployed online and then it grew and then you took it national. So what we're seeing a lot of these days um, and a lot of the people that reach out and want uh, support and advice and whatnot are local small businesses that want to figure out how do they get online with the intention of eventually being able to fulfill orders across the country. So can you kind of break that down for the audience and talk about what it took and what it takes now, right? Because what it took then is different now. Like if you're giving someone advice right now, they've got a small business uh, in a local arena. How do they actually successfully take that online? And then from there, how do they even start to think about national? Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, logic would tell you that it's really, you know, operating an online local retail entity is quite similar to running a brick and mortar local retail entity. There are a few key differences. I think the biggest one is how is marketing? How do you get your customers um, into the door, into the storefront if there is no storefront? And I think, you know, for us yep. Uh, yep. early on, we leveraged a lot of kind of local whatever it is, these days it would be local influencers, local publications, sure. uh, we did a lot of local events, pop-ups, like I said before. So I think that was a major thing for us to just get a little bit of a foothold in the LA market before taking it elsewhere. Um, and online, you know, I mean, there's so many, there's so many sites that have, you know, restrictions on where people can buy. And I think back then it was very difficult to, to have that messaging uh, with the tools that we had uh, technologically and just from totally. Standpoint. But these days, I yeah. think people can really do a good job of that and not lose too much ground or confidence and uh, customer confidence uh, when they tell, oh, sorry, we can't ship to your area. So I think it's very, very, I very yeah, to start small, especially with these larger, larger pieces or larger ticket items that carry totally. a lot of liability. Alex, idea. Alex, uh, because I know I'm going, I think, yeah, I'm looking at the neighbor. I think I'm going to lose quite a bit here, so I want to get this last question. How are you? Zubin takes over. Um, I'm just driving in New York, but there's just pockets. Um, what's the, because I want to bring value to who, who's watching. What's the most you know interesting uh, opportunity on the consumer level that you see from a execution standpoint within marketing to acquire new customers? Is there any channels or any executions that really have your attention right now? I think, well, there's, two, I have two answers to that. One, the pay, social media space is still still untapped. And I think Correct. what I've seen personally, how I've seen it grow over the last three or four years has been ridiculous. Um, we have a lot of eggs in that basket and, it's, and it continues to kind of evolve and, and change course, but still wildly successful. I mean, that's where people are spending their time. We all know that. The, the space that I think maybe doesn't get a fair shake because it's a little bit difficult to understand and a bit like the Wild West is the affiliate marketing space. 
And for for us, where like customer confidence, pardon? I'm sorry, yeah. I was just, I, you know what? I'm even, I'm like the guy, I, I think I'm under tapping that, keep going. Yeah, I think the affiliate space is, you know, it can be real goofy. There's a lot of poaching, especially in our industry, our sales cycles like totally. two to three weeks. So people will look for apartment 2B coupon codes before uh, finalizing their purchase. And, you know, you have to be really careful about who you affiliate with. However, we've gotten a lot, amazing, every month, week after week, mentions from people in our, in our space, apartment therapy, HGTV, Domino, the major editorial players, they want to pay to play. And either you can go with like a huge editorial spread and spend 50 grand, totally. or you can go the affiliate route and just compensate them if sales are generated. Well, and, and so let's lean on that last part, if sales are generated. So one of the things that kind of budding entrepreneurs are going to run into um, that we, we've seen, obviously, those of us that have run media and growth for a number of years is attribution, right? You get really excited. You start running Google ads. You run Facebook. You're on TikTok, Snap. you got affiliates going. You look at the first five days of the month and each of them combined report $200,000 in revenue. And you're like, shit, I only have $50,000 in my Shopify store. Mm -hmm. That's an attribution problem. Everybody's taking credit or multiple places are taking credit. How do you handle affiliate attribution? Yes, if my, the, my team that's watching right now, we're, we're smiling because half of our affiliate marketing calls are about attribution and um, keeping it clean. I think it needs to be heavily watched over. Um, but taking a step back from that, you know, online attribution these days, it's, it's almost impossible to follow. We've tried various tools um, and uh, applications that are meant to like track that and really um, keep that you know policed and clean for you and give you a really accurate picture, it's very, very difficult, especially for a business like us where it's not an immediate purchase. Sure. Customers are coming back to sure. our site. There's multiple site visits for every single customer. Um, so for us, I think our approach is it's somewhat applicable to other industries as well, which is to look at it as a blend. Um, you want to set, you know, set an ROI that you're comfortable with um, obviously that takes time to establish that, but it's math and, you know, most people can figure it out after some time. And once you establish that, then you sort of work backwards. You kind of add pieces to the puzzle, take them away, move things around as you see fit to make sure that you're hitting your numbers and overall, you know, Alex, uh, what you're talking about is iterating because that's real life and too many people want perfection up front and end up never doing shit. Because you're practically operating and a lot of people play in school or thesis or executive role, not operating mm -hmm. role. Well, the good thing about it, the, the luxury and disadvantage that we have is our long sales cycle. And, and I think it's forced us to do this. We don't like not knowing where our sales are coming from or our customer journey, uh, you know, the entire, all the steps of our customer journey, but it, it at least helps to know that, well, we'll never know because they're going on a three-week process. You can't track everything. There's also multiple decision makers usually involved in a furniture purchase. So that's something to consider as well. Um, so we've sort of backdoored our way into this strategy, but I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of the things that we really harp on in terms of uh, our clients and and the, the gentleman that will join us next, uh, Nate Champion, our new chief growth officer. Um, one of the reasons we brought him on board is because we kind of we saw completely eye to eye in terms of growth and the fact that, to Gary's point, 
there's no perfection in this. You're not going to go and say, this is exactly what's going to happen. And this is what's going to happen. The key is unlike yesteryear when old companies would choose one path and go down that path for a year to try to get results, you choose a few paths and then you iterate as quickly as you can with your creative, your channel, this, that, the other to figure out what works and companies that can do that fast and do that effectively are the ones that succeed because ultimately they're trying to find right as opposed to assuming they know what's right. And I think that's kind of what you're, what you're getting at, Alex, is, is what you guys have been able to do. Absolutely. I think us being nimble over the last 10 years has been one of the biggest advantages to our business. Um, changing quickly, making decisions quickly based on data and, um, you know, and, and facts, I think has been tremendously valuable to us, especially in the last few months. The last few months have thrown everybody so many curveballs. I'm sure you guys have discussed this before, you know, previous ones of these. Um, but us being nimble and being able to change our entire marketing campaign for the following week has been one of the tremendous uh, gifts that we've been given, simply because we're inherently nimble um, in our company and, and, and approach it from a boutique kind of standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Alex, one question for you, and then we're going to go to Nate, and then we'll bring you back on for questions uh, from the audience. One quick question for you to end it. What has been the most surprising thing that's occurred for Apartment 2B uh, over the last few months that was unexpected or will potentially be sur a surprise and something that people can learn from that are listening in? I, I think just the, just in general, the tremendous growth that we've experienced, um, even in light of many of the, you know, kind of outside of the COVID-19 situation, the other kind of social roller coaster that we've been on um, societally over the last few months politically, it, our industry has remained incredibly stable and incredibly growth driven. And that has been, I mean, the amount that it has grown has been the biggest surprise. I think it's just very, it's very interesting. It makes sense. If you think about it, sure. everybody's sitting at home complaining about their furniture to their significant other. All right, fine. Go ahead, buy something new. But it's also, it's, it's, it's great. It's a really, it's a blessing, but it's, it's very, very interesting and surprising at the same time. Who would have guessed? Absolutely. Alex, thank you for that. Alex, we'll have you back on about 10, 15 minutes to everyone in the audience. Thank you, Alex. Enter your questions and we'll address them at the end. And now we will introduce our new chief growth officer, Mr. Nate Champion. There he is. Gentlemen, what's happening? What's good, up? How you doing? Good. Good. As everybody can tell, the reason we hired Nate was for his looks. But he also happens to be good at growth. Yeah, that's not what we were looking for, but it just ended up happening. Uh, Nate, tell us about your background. Um, I'll give you, yeah, I'll give you a quick rundown. Hopefully, I don't bore anyone. The uh, I think I'll go back to so in college, I was an econ major. I think that was relatively rare major, and then I went into economic consulting, which was a really rare career path. Super dorky. Um, if you want to be a VP or above, you're a PhD. Um, I worked in the antitrust department and crazy work that we were doing. So we worked, basically it was like a huge merger or acquisition happens, think like Office Max and Staples or Whole Foods and Wild Oats. And the Department of Justice comes in and says, hey, we think this could be really bad for competition. You could raise prices. Um, we get hired on behalf of the lawyers to basically put all the pieces of data together, analyze it and say, hey, this is good or bad for competition. Insanely large disparate data sets um, takes an insane amount of work just to even 
make it one holistic view of, of data and then two to analyze it and run regressions and do all this crazy complicated stuff that that i could not do um, i spent six years doing that and learning a ton in terms of um, understanding data respecting data almost like fearing data and understanding really what you can and cannot do with data um, i remember when i was working there i was like man what the hell am i going to do with my career like this is definitely not what i'm doing the rest of my life i don't want my phd um, but looking back i think that was really like a launching pad in terms of e-commerce because so much of it d2c is data driven. And so um, after six years, I went and did what, what some people do when they have no idea what they want to do. I went to business school. Um, unlike a lot of business school people, I actually didn't, I didn't love business school. I don't, I don't feel like I learned a lot. I do feel like I, I was able to get a lot of exposure to like cool ideas and startups and, and learn that that was the path I wanted to do. Um, it cost a lot of money for me to, to learn that <laughs> um, going to business school. But um, yeah, I spent some time in brand management following like a more traditional career path in, in my summer internship. I didn't love it. It was a little slow moving. Once it started. <laughs> Very slow. Yeah, yeah, so slow. Uh, not that it's-, it's No, no, hold on. Let's, knowing who's watching, like a lot of impressionable, curious, trying to figure out their life. Like right now could be a really funny moment to bring a lot of value and really just one kid getting impacted would be a huge coup for all of us, I'm sure. Explain to them how slow in context to like startup land or fast environments yeah so I'll, I'll give you an example so my my summer internship was for a huge uh it was actually cpg brands within a pharmaceutical company so even more red tape added to the equation even slower over the otc over the counter yeah um okay. and so i got a really sexy product i got wart remover for the summer and i was tasked with understanding like why we were losing market share within the space and why the whole space was losing market share i did all these crazy analysis. it was actually kind of a fun project to think about and, and try and figure out I remember at the end, I presented all the- How do you get a wart, by the way? How do you What's get one? the truth? Like, I, I'm, yeah, I'm like genuinely have no idea. How does one get a wart? Uh, it's, it's a virus, like skin to skin contact type deal, if I remember correctly. Zubin, do you know, like I still think if I pick up a frog, I'm getting one. <laughs> you gotta kiss the frog, dude. You can touch it. You, you know what's funny? Kiss. I still have a scar on my hand. I actually had one when I was little on my, on my, in, on my hand and I literally bit it off. Like that's how I decided, it took me like a year. Yeah, that was, so some people were solving it by like using duct tape and stuff. I remember when I was oh, looking. Oh, keep going, sorry. Um, yeah, so anyway, I came up with all these cool strategies. I had to present it to like a bunch of people, big weeks at the company. I remember one of them that, that drove me kind of nuts was like I was analyzing our TV spend and I had figured out, okay, our TV spend actually does nothing to drive sales. Yes. And so in Q4, we had a bunch, we had millions of dollars scheduled for TV spend. And we were in like Q2 or something. So I was like, all right, guys, um, as part of the presentation, I'm gonna throw in here, like rip out the TV spend, let's reinvest it into these channels that actually perform and drive sales. And I remember my boss was like, Nate, like we can't show that to the big wigs. They're gonna take the money and invest it somewhere else. They're gonna think we're doing a horrible job. They're not gonna understand why we ever invested in TV. And I was just like, man, like this is, this is brutal. You guys don't actually wanna action on any of the data that you're seeing. And then all the other ideas were like, so much red tape to go through and so impossible to just execute on it. It would be like two years to, to execute one of these things. And compared to a startup, um, same day, like I find something, it's like, dude, I think we can launch a new landing page and increase conversion a little bit. It's up in two hours and there you go. And so I think that um, the speed to execution and the ability to learn much quicker to me was was so much more fun than than slowly planning and, and strategizing in a space that- and, and the ability not to have to worry that you're gonna offend someone or something that was done before you, right? 
totally. like to your point, the reason they didn't want to stop doing television is because they're like, someone's going to tell me why have I been doing television for so long? Totally. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of growth marketing. And an ultra challenge is like, what is the truth and how do you action on that truth and learn and just keep that cycle going? So, um, yeah, that's really what got me in, involved in startups. Like I said, it was a very expensive lesson to learn by going to business school, but um, one that I'm, I'm definitely grateful for. I think one of the things just for the audience to take home, not being in meetings, for, for those of you, basically everyone in the audience who isn't in meetings with Gary frequently, one of the things that you recognize when you are in meetings with him is a lot of what he really focuses in on is changing bad behavior, recognizing it, and then trying to influence that bad behavior. So, and it's it's bad for now, right? It, it could have been good before, but the reality is it's bad for now. And when- And it might be bad, and it might be bad. I mean, I cannot wait, cannot wait to 13 to 16 years from now, putting out content, making fun of everything yep. that I hold near and dear today. But that's the point, because it involves, and that yet the they don't. But but one Jerry of the Rice, Jerry Rice would not be the best receiver in football today. Yeah, he's the goat, but he would not go on the field right now and dominate. And that's just the way it is. And that inherently is one of the advantages that everybody listening in right now who doesn't have the baggage of bad decisions with them. That's the advantage that they have. That. You can go out there, do your research, figure out how to do things the right way, which is part of why we have the show, right? Like we want to teach people not how Alex did it before or how Nate did it before, but rather how they think and how they get to the conclusions that they do so that you can leverage that. You can start thinking that way and make the best decision for yourself today, not based on a decision somebody else made before, but how they made the decision before. Anyway, sorry, Nate, we went on a uh, complete random rant. Bring us yeah, and, to- and, and real quick, I just want to say, Nate, Welcome on board. I'm super obsessed, as you know. I, I, I'm bouncing off anyway. Schedule time. I, I, I'm glad I didn't chop off. Uh, and uh, have a great rest of the show, Zubian. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Yeah. So, Nate, bring us to Freshly and, and talk to us a little bit. So just to kind of recap for everybody, and, and one of the reasons why I was so impressed with Nate, um, as I mentioned at the onset of this, around um, how we see growth, is because of the fact that his foundation was in finance and data and then realizing that a lot of the data isn't actionable. And then when he tried to make it actionable, in some cases he wasn't able to, but the fact that we see eye to eye on that with the rest of the team as well, in terms of it being able to build growth models and think about an organization's growth with the proper balance of data intuition and the, and the quant qual balance of quantifying something and qualitatively looking at it and understanding how the two work hand in hand and not that they're separate is really critical to success. Yes, you've got data that you can look at, you've got all the analytics reports, but your ability to be able to actually trust your gut, trust what you wanna do, put it out there, do it as quickly as you can, and then look at the results and let those results influence what you're doing is really critical. So I just want Nate to give us a couple of minutes about his experience at Freshly that's had phenomenal growth um, since the beginning, since Nate's been there. Um, and then we'll bring Alex back and start answering some of your questions. Cool. Yeah. So I was, uh, fortunate enough. I was the first hire back at Freshly in, in 2015, um, pre-series A. So they had already, there were people in the kitchen cooking meals and stuff, but the CEO had just moved to New York. When I joined, it was just myself and the CEO doing the, the marketing and kind of business side of, of Freshly. And I think, uh, food was the perfect place. So I think 
growth marketing in general, a startup in general is, is a great way to, to learn about a business, but also add food on top of it, D to C food, prepared D to C food, and you add so much complexity and um, the margins are so tight that growth marketing acquisition retention becomes so huge and so important. And so I think it was really the perfect environment for me to, to learn about this stuff because the stakes were so high. And so, um, yeah, I had a blast. I mean, man, in the beginning, we were we were lucky to get to a million meals a year. Uh, this year, probably do more like 40 million. Um, we were on the Deloitte's like fastest 500. I think we were number 70 in the in the fastest growing companies. Um, it's been a wild ride, man. It's 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 been absolutely crazy. And yeah, to your point, it's it's uh, it really starts at the top. So the CEO is a very smart guy, very data driven guy. And I think he understood exactly what you're talking about. And it, it trickles down. And so you've got a team and a culture who really believes in in this growth mindset and this um, really building these loops that allow you to grow a company quicker than you otherwise would. And so I think it becomes a volume game of saying like, hey, let's put this out in the world. Let's analyze it. Let's see if it works. The stuff that works, scale it. The stuff that does not work, turn it off. Building systems around that so you can get to that answer quicker and faster. Um, leveraging technology, as you know, and this, this is a big reason why I'm joining Vayner is because you guys uh, really take this holistic approach to growth. You're not just optimizing on advertising, trying to minimize CAC and saying, we do a great job at that. You're saying, we do a great job at everything. We think about acquisition, we think about retention, we think about the tech stack, which really at the end of the day, it's all the same stuff. If you if you deep dive into retention, it ends up being an acquisition question. If you deep dive into acquisition, it ends up being a retention question. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I'm i pumped to be here, man. I'm, I'm on day five, but I'm, I feel like I've been here for five years already. We're pumped to be here and your last name is Champion, so fuck yeah. Uh, Nate, one more question for you that I think is really important as well for the audience. And I promise we'll bring Alex back, back, um, retention. When you and I first met, when we talked about media growth, direct to consumer growth, et cetera, one of the things that you, uh, mentioned, and if there was like a word cloud, uh, for our conversation, the biggest word would have been retention. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how you see retention because so many companies, so many people that are out there right now, they start a brand, they're doing everything. Everybody's focused on uh, acquisition. And so just for everyone's edification, you've got three parts at a very high level of a funnel, right? You've got the acquisition side and that has its own upper funnel, lower funnel, mid funnel. You acquire the customer to your site. Then there's a conversion, which is like your site side of things and they buy from you. And then there's retention. And so many brands over the last five, 10 years, I focus on acquisition and conversion and retention has been like a secondary tertiary thing. Like, Oh, now we kind of need to get our uh, customers to buy from us again. Why is it that you put so much emphasis into retention, even at the onset of acquisition? Well, so, I mean, I would say we did the same thing at Freshly where we raised our series, a grow, 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 heavy discounts, um, every channel that you could possibly think of, even the crappy ones. And then you start to say, wow, my retention is going down. And I think once you start, thinking about retention, you realize that retention is a hugely difficult problem to one, understand and, and two, solve as a result of that. So I think not that acquisition is easy, but it's an easier game to play and optimize around a, an ad to a conversion. Retention is really like everything from the ad that I see to the experience that I have on site, to the post-purchase onboarding sequence, to the emails that I receive, to the customer service that I have, to the inbox experience, everything is retention. And so I think, um, when you realize how hard it is to understand, you, you kind of start to realize why so many companies don't really know how to piece it together and think about it. And, re and really, it's, it's a massive data question. And so I think um, 
tons and tons of low hanging fruit. I've consulted uh, for so many brands on the retention side of business where they just don't know even what to look at. What are the right KPIs to look at? Um, what should they be? What's like a good benchmark? And so I think there's so much low hanging fruit. You've already done the work of acquiring this customer, most likely paying to acquire this customer, paying for the eyeballs, testing, getting them to convert. And now how do you optimize that and monetize it even further? And so I think, um, yeah, it's just a really, really difficult uh, question to solve. It's kind of like death by a thousand cuts type deal. And so um, piecing that together. And then, like I said earlier, like it really does come back to acquisition at some point and you say, hey, my retention is actually best by this channel at this discount rate. And you start pulling those levers. And that's, that's again, really where like thinking about growth holistically, because when you have these disparate teams an acquisition team and a retention team and a product team for sure. operating in silos, you don't get to piece all that together and say, hey, dude, your Facebook campaigns that run this specific campaign on this specific plan with this specific discount might give you a really low acquisition cost, but it's actually horrible retention. So let's turn that off, scale this one, scale this one. Um, yeah, and another way of kind of putting what you're mentioning, I think for the audience is that look, acquisition, you're running ads, you're doing all this stuff at the, 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 the funnel to get people to your site experience, whether you're selling Amazon, you're selling direct to consumer on your .com, whatever it is, you wanna optimize that experience so they buy on your .com and you wanna make sure that they can buy multiple products, often, frequent, et cetera. But retention is the real business, I think is what Nate's talking about here. Yeah, that's what the made. If you had a physical business, it would be the experience someone gets talking to your customer service team, how they feel about your brand, all of those real things that are often overlooked because people are looking at just selling a product, right? And they're thinking about how am I gonna sell this product spend the least amount of money selling this thing and growing. But the reality of that um, and the reality of a lot of this is that we don't have to go too far to look at direct to consumer businesses that succeed. We should look at other businesses historically that have succeeded. And again, I want to emphasize that it's not about how they do things, but it's about what they care about. And when there's a customer centric mentality in that organization, when they feel like we have to make sure our customers are happy, and not happy because they're expected to be happy or that they're expecting something from us, but how do we surprise and delight them? If we're gonna sell them a product, how do we add something in there that they weren't expecting? I, I keep referencing this and I think it's just so important for people to understand. When any of us uh, listening in, um, you, you, we used to go to the store, whatever, you buy cologne, you buy perfume, you buy lotion, Macy's, Nordstrom, whatnot. One of the best parts of that experience for many people were the samples they gave you. You weren't expecting them, but you got those samples. And it's what can you do that's unexpected to elevate that experience. So when you buy from apartment 2B, you're gonna go tell five of your friends, shit, man, this came faster than I expected. It was a great experience. They followed up with me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think those are the things that many brands that exist today, as well as ones that are starting, aren't putting enough emphasis into, which are the real reasons why somebody cares about the brand, which has to do with the product, the customer service, the authenticity, the, the real part of that business. Alex, anything to add there? Well, yes, I think, I think we're very strong in a lot of those areas, but in our industry, specifically these kind of larger ticket items where you're not buying a sofa every single year, yep. uh, it can sort of muddy the waters strategically when it comes to developing a retention plan that, that makes sense. And you're right, Nate, everything you said about brands being so overly focused on acquisition, um, we, I mean, we live that, you know? Yeah. Um, it's fun. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think that. I oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, I think for, like, you look at real estate, right? Um, real estate agents. Real estate agents aren't selling you homes every day, but the really good ones, their retention play is obviously that they'll sell another home to you in five to seven years or whatever that cycle is. But their retention play is that you're going to go tell five other people about that experience. And, 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 and they're going to be able to retain you and your circle. And I think that's the same for like apartment 2B. It's not about me buying and retaining me. I'll think about them again when I buy in the future, but it's more a matter of my circle and me sharing within my circle. And then you start looking at retention, not as me, but who I influence and, and, and retaining that group, if you will. Yeah, if that were to be referred to as sort of indirect retention, I think we do a very good job of that. And that's a huge part of how we built our brand. Absolutely. Expert, you know, marketers and advertisers from day one, but the word of mouth spreading of, of apartment to be and the good experiences and the great furniture and the good product that people have received from us, I think has been invaluable. So it's a great point. Awesome. Let's jump into questions, gentlemen. Niles Clark asks, what percentage of overall marketing budget is allocated to 100% brand spend? You want to take a time, Alex? Sure, yeah. For us, um, I think just in general, one has to sort of feel it out. And I think this might be an industry-specific sort of a thing. Um, you know, for us, our, our, our customers are generally looking for, there's there's a convenience aspect and there is um there's there's something to be said for a need that needs to be serviced and those those customers may need to be marketed to a bit more directly uh, than some others that you may be romancing for a longer period of time i think so for us i think the percentage of you know brand and marketing exploits just pure brand brand awareness type stuff is is a lot lower than maybe other industries that are a little bit more into the romance. Um, we have a product that fulfills a need for individuals, and you know we sort of kind of we're pretty aggressive in that regard. Um, but we do pay a lot of attention. We always have to the brand and really try to do some interesting things to differentiate ourselves as a furniture retailer from the many marketplaces and faceless brands in, in our space. So I think it's very important. Well, and I think what's, what's perhaps um, a good takeaway for those that are listening in is the fact that very few organizations can spend money on 100% brand, right? you're starting out, or even if you're growing, you can't spend 100% brand, but what Apartment 2B does, and the ones that are really successful doing this, they integrate brand throughout the experience. And one of the things that Gary talks about often is that lower funnel, and the fact that that lower funnel is so focused on conversion, meaning I see this ad about a lifestyle, generally speaking, whatever, I'm like, oh, that's interesting, about a nice looking living room, and I click to it, and then I start looking at a few products and then I start seeing more product driven ads mid funnel. And then when I actually go to one product, then I'm just getting retargeted to literally just buy that product without much brand influence in there. And it's really at that point where you can introduce brand and flip this thing on its head and not think about, Hey, I'm going to go brand to hybrid brand product to straight product. But I think again, what's really important is not necessarily to allocate percentage of spend for 100% brand but integrate brand 100% throughout your spend. Cool. Next question, Brandon Bell. 
well, this he directing it at Nate, so we're gonna go to Nate. <laughs> Nate, recent college grad here, going to Big Four Consulting. I want to work in the startup growth space for my career. What can I learn now that will make me an amazing e-com growth consultant? Okay, so I think, uh, and this is obviously biased from my own experience, but like I said earlier, I think having a deep understanding of data and and what's a lot of people might say, like, yeah, I'm a data-driven marketer, and I've worked with I've worked with a lot of marketers who said that. And I promise you 99.9% .9 of them are, are not. And like testing an AB, AB testing a subject line is, is not data driven. I'm talking like hardcore, you can write SQL code, you can work with massive data sets, um, you can build cohort retention waterfalls. Um, you, you truly understand and respect data. I think as a, as a core, um, as like a foundation, I think really gives you a massive, massive um, head start over everyone else working in the growth space because typically what you have is more traditional marketers who like are data driven but not really and they can't do all that stuff or you have a data scientist who can do all that stuff but they don't understand what they should be looking for or how it can whatever insights are extracted can be launched in a marketing campaign and so i think when you have both of those things you can move so much faster and get so much more done um, with with way fewer people um, and really just crank, man. And so I think, I think from my, my end, I would say data understanding for sure. Um, taking like a SQL course or something. And then another great resource that I really like, it's, it's kind of expensive, but you might be able to figure something out with work is uh, Reforge has some really good, um, Brian Balfour and that, that group have some really good uh, resources about growth and startups and e-commerce and all that good stuff. Brilliant. And I want to apologize for Stephen Columbia, who in the comments asked me to play some motivational uh, <laughs> a motivational tune on the piano as Nate was talking. Next time we'll have the keyboard here so I can just basically make a soundtrack as we go. Uh, next question. Thank you for that, Nate. Vanessa N, where do you draw the line if your product works versus needs better marketing and targeting? Alex. Yeah, that's an interesting interesting question um you know what that means to me or what that brings up in my mind is kind of the current period that we're in we are a hundred percent focused on keeping up with growth growth and scale and not really able to focus on the next the new the interesting really developing our product and our brand the way that we're used to doing we're focused on reacting versus being proactive um so I think sometimes it can be difficult and you don't always get to choose. Um, but I think, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? I mean, you, you need to get feedback from customers. I've always been extremely deeply immersed in, in everything having to do with the customer experience. I read a lot. Um, and I think you get a sense of whether something's really, really, really working um, and who you're, who you're reaching and who you're targeting um, and if that's working as well. Can I add something, Zubin? Please. Um, I think this is also kind of like a product market fit question. And when I think about product market fit, it ultimately it comes down to retention. So maybe your acquisition costs are super high and you might be asking this question saying like, do I need to be better at targeting or copy or messaging or whatever it is and, and uh, more effectively convert people? I think if people are sticking around and using the product, ultimately that answers your question of, okay, this is this is a product that works. Now it becomes a game of how do I get more people to buy this product and spend less money doing so. And so I think um, as most things do in the e-commerce world, 
I, I think it comes back to a retention question and then it becomes, okay, how do I get better at, at acquisition marketing? Yeah, that's, that's fantastic advice. And I think that to, to, to kind of recap that on two ends, one is, does your product work? Is there a market fit for your product? Um, and, and to Alex and Nate's points, that's something you've got to figure out. And I think as much as we often pay too much attention to what works versus what doesn't work. So you put out a lot of creative, this, that, the other, you see what works, talk to those people, try to engage with those people who haven't purchased or those people who've had a bad experience and understand why. Um, reach out to them, set up chat on your site so that you can actually speak to people that are browsing your site and, and, and live connect with them and find out why they're not purchasing it. Because if the issue is that your product is 50 bucks and it's costing you $75 to sell it, well, is there an opportunity somebody buys it three times in, in a period of four months, in which case you can pay $75. So the whole works thing is, is there a market fit for it? And if there is, then are you pricing it too high? Are you not able to justify the acquisition costs, et cetera? But really try to break that problem down so that it's not a matter of, uh, is this going to work or not? Or am I going down the wrong path or not? Break those things up for yourself so that you understand how to make those decisions in terms of go, no, go as you move forward. Um, brilliant, guys. All right, Billy Snasks asks, how important is SEO or Google Ads to be on top spot on a very niche product if you're a startup? Who's taking this one? You are. <laughs> yeah, and then Alex, you can chime in. Um, I think I think it depends. So SEO is one of those things that you always wish that you invested in sooner because it's like more of a long game and you don't really realize the benefits of SEO until much later. And so I've always found that in every, every startup that I've been a part of, it's like, man, I wish I'd, I started this yesterday. And so I would say SEO gets started from the beginning, start thinking about that stuff. Um, Google ads, I would say it depends on, um, like if we're thinking about branded search and, and bidding on your own terms, like whatever your brand name is, I think if nobody else is bidding on it, then absolutely not. You should not be spending on, on branded search. Um, if other people are, then, then it becomes a, a data question. How much does it cost then for me to get the customer and how much am I willing to pay and what's my lifetime value? And then the non-branded non stuff is tricky. So like if you're selling, like Freshly, for example, if you're selling prepared food, do you want to bid on someone who searches for healthy meals? Or is that like way too broad and it's going to be super expensive for me to convert someone who searches for that? Again, I think that's more of a, uh, a data question at the end of the day. But Alex, I would, I would be interested to hear what you have to say. Well, the niche product thing was was the part that I found most interesting about this question because we there are some categories that we covered that in the online space has been over the last ten years a very niche product furniture in general to be one one of them. Um, but we'll often find you know analyzing our organic search prowess and in, in various uh, categories that we're like extremely top ranked in a certain area. And I think it's important to number one be very aware of of what your uh, what data is coming back as far as you know uh, SEO and, and search volume and also react be able to react to that there's also a correlation between the SEO and the paid paid search um, aspect as well I think those two can run hand in hand when we see an opportunity in SEO we often will try to exploit that opportunity in Google Ads as well to try to you know, whether, one thing, for instance, for us, just use a real example, uh, sleeper sectionals, that's sectional sofas with a sleeper in it, huge item, really heavy, 
very rare to sort of find in general in the furniture market. Um, and we have a very strong program in that specific area. So we were outranking all of our big competitors in that in the last couple of years. I think they've wised up to it or everyone has kind of gotten into the market a little bit more. But we had a sweet spot where we were hitting them both on SEO and we had some great rankings and also on paid search was a really, really um, heavy target for us in that specific category. That's awesome. So Billy Snacks, it's very important. All right. <laughs> Folks, we got time for one last question today. Um, please, for all the other questions you have, uh, tweet at us. We'll answer them for you. Um, just message us and, and we'll definitely get to you. Uh, join us next week as well. But in the meantime, one final question from Overlooting. Personal question, how do you as a marketer determine the tasks or activities that will end up being the most relevant for business growth? Nate, you first. Um, I'm going to sound like a broken record. I think it's, it's ultimately a data question. I think as you do more and more marketing, you start to learn, okay, this is probably going to have more of an impact than this. Out of recognition. Yeah, but I think uh, ultimately it's just like uh, testing, understanding the impact, and saying, okay, I'm going to go with the one that I think can, can drive the largest impact. Um, so it sounds simple, but I think that's, I think that's the game. And I'll piggyback on that by talking about the, the preemptive action to that. You have to make some gut decisions and use your own intuition and experience and observation of what other people are doing to gain at least some semblance of a strategic plan. And once you start that strategic plan, like Nate said, you gotta be all over the data, I think. And that's been you know, very, very valuable to us over the years. Thanks, gents. One last thing I'll add on that. I think the key part of that question is business growth and understanding what that means to you. Because in order to understand where you wanna spend your time, you have to map that to the outcomes that you're looking for. So if your outcomes are top line revenue, your outcome might be that you have a lot of revenue, but you need to cut costs. What does business growth mean for you? And then try to map out everything that you do to focus on achieving those milestones against those outcomes. And then you'll realize that success and it won't just be serendipitous. Alex, absolute pleasure to have you on. So Thank good to see you. Nate, welcome aboard. For the rest Thanks, of you, sir. please uh, reach out. I'm sorry, there are a lot of questions we wanted to answer. Unfortunately, due to time, we couldn't reach out to us. We'll get to you. Please join us next week. And in the meantime, have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. See you. All right, episode's over. Please leave a review and subscribe up on Apple. It would mean a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to me. Thank you very much. Hey, podcast. Joe from Team Gary here. Today's highlighted review is Real Truth by Frequency Interrupted. The simplistic honesty that is raw and in your face makes so much difference when giving advice. Just when I think I have it all figured out, Gary throws another curveball that makes you constantly adjust perspective. Accountability is everything, and this podcast is a constant inspiration. Thanks to Frequency Interrupted. Keep those reviews coming. We could highlight yours next.